Mark well this figure and listen. Listen, can you hear it? The wind is rising. The sound of thunder reverberates throughout a billion, billion worlds. Doom! And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 1 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. So welcome to The Lightning and the Storm, or welcome back if you're an Indiegogo donor who uh, listened to our preview episode. We are really glad to have you here, and we are really excited to be telling you all about the greatest run, about the greatest Norse god with the greatest blue dots on his chest ever, The Mighty Thor. Yes, we are both so excited to be here and both love Walter Simonson's Mighty Thor, though, of course, we come at it from different angles. Yeah, I am Miles Stokes, and in addition to growing up on X-Men, which you may have heard me talk about with Jay Edidin on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, I grew up with the Mighty Thor, specifically the era that we're going to be covering in this podcast, and it is in my very blood, in my very bones. Like, there are crack dooms etched upon my left ventricle. My doctor says <laughs> I, it's fine, it's actually not, not a problem, it's just an aesthetic weirdness. Uh, and you're more recent to it, right? Yes, I'm Elizabeth Alley, and I was born and bred in X-Men, but Walter Simonson's Thor is one of those classic examples of an excellent comics run that has always been bandied about. There's Frank Miller's Daredevil, there is Walter Simonson's Thor, there's Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, and you know, I've read a bunch of Walter Simonson's Thor, but this is the first time I've really gone in depth with it, and man, it is awesome. Yeah, from a purely selfish perspective, having having an excuse to dive as deeply as we can into the nine realms of Yggdrasil uh, is pretty great, and we're also really excited to share that with you. So, Who is this podcast intended for? Basically anybody who likes awesome things. I'm sure that some of the people listening here uh, are already very familiar with this run or reading along with us, and maybe some people have only seen Thor in the movies or don't know who Thor is, and in which case I don't know how you found this show, but congratulations, I hope you like it. (laughs) So, Miles, how is this show going to work? Well, Elizabeth... We are going to be covering, in our limited series format, it's going to be 13 episodes, the entirety of Walter Simonson's epic 1983-1987 to run on the Mighty Thor. And one of the reasons that I'm excited to do that is because this run stands alone quite well. You really don't need to know anything about Thor other than the very basic premise, he's the Norse god of thunder, going in. And from the first issue to the last issue, it is a complete story. It works really well in that regard, which is a rarity in the world of superhero comics. Yeah, and it was incredible to me, you know, reading the first four issues, I read the previous issue, which is 336, and the transformation between, you know, pre-Walter Simonson and post-Walter Simonson, it just cannot be stated strongly enough. Like, it took it directly from the Silver Age to the Modern Age. Very much so. Uh, For people who are unfamiliar, the Silver Age was basically the 60s. It was where Marvel Comics, as we know it, got its start with the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, early X-Men, and... Thor. And there's sort of a cheesy, earnest feel to it that's pretty awesome, but is very different from what we think of as modern comics. And Walter Simonson, who was the writer and artist of the first half of his run and just the writer of the second half, like as soon as he shows up, this is a different book from page one. 
most of my previous experience with Thor is reading Silver Age Avengers to my son at night. And while that is a great book in its own way, with the era it was written in, with so many different characters, you kind of get just kind of a paper-thin characterization of Thor and here he really feels like a real person I mean a real godly person Mm -hmm. interacting with other people in a way that matters exactly yeah so speaking of Thor we should talk a little bit about who he is so the mighty Thor is unusual in Marvel in that it's based on an actual pre-existing mythology it's based on Norse mythology uh, where you have a number of gods, a number of deities, a number of different divine and supernatural realms making up the world. Thor is just one god, but he's the one we focus on. He's the god of thunder. And he, in mythology, is not really known for being the smartest guy, but he's very strong, he's very powerful, he's usually pretty noble. We see that a little bit more in Marvel than in the actual mythology, where he can be sort of arrogant. And so we should clarify, we're going to be focusing on Marvel Thor, Marvel Asgard, Marvel Norse mythology, which at times can be very different from the actual Norse religion and Norse mythology out there. So that stuff is rad, but we're going to be talking about the kind that involves a lot more red capes and (laughs) battles in space. And of course, Thor is known for being quite arrogant. And there's the whole, you know, is he really worthy to wield Mjolnir? And that's why Odin is constantly keeping him in check. Exactly. Mjolnir being his mighty mystic Uru metal hammer that can do all sorts of awesome magical stuff. And if you've seen the Thor movies, you've seen certainly a version of Thor, a uh, an entertaining, charismatic, a little bit goofy, but uh, at the same time very noble dude. This has a different feel. I mean, there's not the same focus on humor in the Thor comics as in the Thor movies, although at times it can definitely be pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, Thor in the movies is pretty much a himbo can we say that you know he's he's a charming funny kind of dim blonde where in in the comics he's definitely funny but it's a it's a different take so if you've been reading superhero comics for very long you know that continuity which is to say all of the various events that build up and build up and build up that could get pretty intense. If you were to jump into, say, X-Men at a random time, it could be very confusing because the stories are predicated upon an assumption that you know what's happened in the last 20 years. Like we mentioned, this run of Thor doesn't really have that problem in the same way because it stands alone so well. But nonetheless, there are a ton of different characters and a ton of mystical locations and magical artifacts. And rather than giving a big primer at the beginning, we're just going to talk about those as they first show up. So hopefully that'll make sense that way. And speaking about talking about these matters, when it comes to pronunciation, we're going to do the best we can. Uh, If any of you have any uh, constructive tips for us, we will welcome them. But until then, we're just sounding things out. Yep. Uh, I have a friend who is working on learning Scandinavian language. The internet has been somewhat helpful. But nonetheless, we're going to screw things up. We apologize in advance. (laughs) All of that said, I think we should probably talk about the mighty Thor, talk about the beginning of Walter Simonson's incredible run, which we love and we hope you do as well. I'm ready. All right, so let's dive in with Thor number 337, Walter Simonson's first issue, entitled simply Doom. And the cover says it all. It's a Thor-clad alien smashing the old Thor logo with Mjolnir. There'll be a new Thor logo next issue. And as you can see, he's also uh, smashing the corner art, which is Thor. Yeah, I mean, what a strong statement to have some random horse-looking alien guy smashing through everything that made the old Thor comic the old Thor comic. It's Walter Simonson basically saying, hey, this is my comic now. Nothing is ever going to be the same. Yeah, it's a very elegant and effective way to say Everything's going to be different now. And speaking of elegant and effective ways to start things off, 
this opening few pages, you would expect to see Thor flying around or talking to different Asgardians or fighting villains, but instead, we open in the depths of space. And not just space like a bunch of blackness with little white dots, but we're talking so many planets and nebulas and bright colors. Space as it doesn't actually exist, but as, in my opinion, it totally should. Space as it would look on the side of a van in the 1970s or possibly a Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper. <laughs> and this opening narration... Far beyond the fields we know, the core of an ancient galaxy explodes, and a molten ingot of star stuff is left behind, but not left alone. Mark well this figure and listen. Listen. Can you hear it? The wind is rising. The sound of thunder reverberates throughout a billion, billion worlds. Doom. And as this is happening, there is this shadowy figure out in freaking space, grabbing an ingot of metal from the heart of a star and pounding it down upon, I don't know, some other space, I guess. This is the most cosmic stuff I had ever seen in a comic the first time I read this issue. And honestly, it still stands up there in like the top three. The first three pages of this book just blow me away. So much of what Walter Simonson does is cinematic, but this is like the opening shots to a movie. You know, this isn't old Silver Age Thor. This is something cosmic and epic and important starting. Also something kind of confusing because we have no idea what's going on. And that works. We know we're being drawn into something big. And like there's immediately that desire to understand what's the context? Why is this here? Why is space so awesome? We will find out the answer to all of these questions. Well, except the last one, which is that it just is when Walter Simonson draws it. Sure. And I like that we transition from here to a park in Chicago. Very much in the 1980s. Oh, it is so 80s every time we're on Earth in this entire run. It's lovely. <laughs> Which in its own way makes this age well as a, as a piece of nostalgia. So Don Blake is strolling through Chicago's Grant Park, enjoying the neon boomboxes and skateboards of the 1980s. So who is Don Blake, you might ask? Why, we have an answer for you. So a lot of superheroes have secret identities. They have alter egos that are more normal, more human, etc. And Thor's is a guy named Dr. Donald Blake. He's a slim blonde man who walks with a limp and uses a cane. And the deal is that Odin, the father of Thor, thought that Thor was getting too arrogant way back in the day. And so turned him into a mortal with no memories of who he really was to teach him to be humble. At this point, Thor has basically learned how to be a little bit less of a jerk, but he can still transform back and forth between Thor, the blonde, mulleted, hammer-wielding god, and Don Blake, a doctor guy. That's been his status quo for a very long time, and as we open, it still is. So when he's on Earth wandering around, trying to not attract a bunch of attention, he's just this doctor dude. And not only is Donald Blake an alter ego, he's kind of a good plot device in that a lot of times Thor will transform into Donald Blake at the wrong time. Right, because if Thor, at least while he's in the vicinity of Earth, is out of contact with Mjolnir, his mystic hammer, for too long, then whether he wants to or not, all of a sudden he's Don Blake and the hammer turns into a regular old walking stick. So, Don is hit by a stray frisbee, which again happened in our preview issue for those listeners who were able to listen to this, just like Hercules was in issue 356, which makes me wonder, what is it with the 80s and people not being able to control their frisbees? And in the 90s, was everybody hit by hacky sacks? That at least sounds a little more comfortable. Those things were so <laughs> soft and cuddly. I mean, maybe not if they were fired at you at high velocity. That would be like being hit with a beanbag round or something. I don't want that to happen. I'd be more worried about the patchouli. Oh, True. The college I went to was gloriously hippie-tacular, and in many ways I enjoyed that a great deal, but the constant patchouli was uh, a little overwhelming. The constant Bob Marley was too. 
Yeah, dude, I went to U of O. I never want to smell patchouli or listen to Grateful Dead ever again. <laughs> Sorry, patchouli and Grateful Dead lovers. I, I guess I didn't overdose on the Grateful Dead. I still sort of <laughs> love them. But yeah, Don, Don Blake is uh, whacked in the head with a Frisbee and then suddenly carted off into a waiting car by two guys in suits with very little explanation as to why. But of course, this all becomes clear because inside is Nick Fury, the old one, the say, let's say Hasselhoff, not Jackson. Exactly. Uh, but just like in the movies, just like the Samuel Jackson version, this Nick Fury runs S.H.I.E.L.D., which is sort of a great big awesome spy organization that sort of works with the government and has a great big uh, aircraft carrier that flies around and uh, is involved in way more stories than one might think. And he cuts right to the chase. He knows Don's secret and he needs Thor's help. And they take off into the air because, of course, the car can fly because it's S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury, and it's awesome. So once Donald Blake finally admits, yeah, okay, you got my secret, I totally am Thor, he transforms. And I love the way this is portrayed because we just see this spray of Kirby dots, those being the kind of uh, characteristic energy dots pioneered by Jack Kirby and adopted by Walter Simonson, uh, coming from the outside of the car, and Nick Fury just saying, Yow! Why didn't you warn me about the special effects? Thou didst not ask. And that right there is Simonson's Thor. Like, Thor is a badass, he is excellent at fighting, and he's very noble, and he's very epic, but he also has this warm, wry sense of humor that Simonson really portrays in a way that I don't think anybody ever had before to that degree or has since. Yeah, and here I think it plays off very well against Nick Fury's kind of crusty old man, I'm too old for this sort of cop movie, you know, aesthetic that he has here. So they arrive at the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, the aforementioned floating aircraft carrier which, with all of its awesome technology, and Nick Fury and his assistant tell Thor what's going on and the reason they brought him here. A S.H.I.E.L.D. probe has detected an alien ship passing by a star and sucking it in, perhaps to refuel, and now it's heading directly toward Earth. So Thor questions. And the probe? Deader than a doornail, Thor. Blown apart by something coming our way. Something real powerful and dangerous. We gotta find out what it is, and you're the only Joe who can do it. Will you help us? So Sam Jackson is a fine Nick Fury, but I do miss this old school version of Nick. Like, he's just so colloquial and informal about everything while still running, like, the biggest spy network on the globe. And what I found was really interesting is this is Thor's book, but we don't see Thor as Thor until page seven, this page right here. And even then, he's in shadow. So when we do see him, it is on, in his full glory. It, on page eight, it's this huge hero shot of him and going off into space with Mjolnir that takes up more than half the page. Yeah, and once we finally do have that reveal of Thor and his colorful glory, it's pretty epic. Simonson draws a truly impressive God of Thunder. Thor, of course, is not the only important character in this book, and we cut to Asgard, and do you want to talk a little bit about what Asgard is? Asgard Spalutely. <laughs> you know, a lesser man would ask that to be edited out, but I am brave, and we're going to keep it. So, Asgard is one of nine realms in Yggdrasil, the world tree, which in Norse mythology is this great big ash tree that contains nine different worlds. One of them is Midgard, which is Earth, the world where we live on. Another is Asgard, the realm of the Aesir, the realm of the gods of whom Thor is one. It's a golden shining city out in space, this giant asteroid connected to Earth by a rainbow bridge called Bifrost. I really love Norse mythology a lot. Dude, how come we don't have an Asgard uh, amusement park? I, I would be okay with that. I would be okay with various, you know, mechanized, slightly dangerous rides that were all made of gold and rainbows and Kirby dots and energy. Yeah, connected by a rainbow roller coaster? That sounds rad. Okay, uh, people with money, get on this. I like this plan. <laughs> 
So here in Asgard, we have the Lady Sif finding a depressed Balder feasting despondently with Volstagg, and we should probably talk about who all these people are, because they're going to be important. Sure. Sif is one of the Vanir, the other set of gods from the realm of Vanaheim. A fierce warrior, she was Thor's love interest for a long time, including, you know, the issue immediately preceding this one. They are on the outs because Thor prefers Earth and Sif prefers Asgard. Pretty much. Now, the despondent feasting guy is Balder the Brave. He's a real big deal in Norse mythology and in the Thor comic. He's the god of light. He's also invulnerable to almost everything uh, in existence, except for mistletoe. There's a long mythological story about that, which you should totally read about, because it's a good one. But the short version is that somewhat recently in the comic, Loki, god of lies and mischief, arranged for Balder to be killed by a mistletoe arrow. Balder went to Hel, that's Hel with one L, one of the Norse realms of the dead, the main one where you go if you're not an awesome valiant warrior, and while he was brought back to life by Odin, king of the gods, when he came back, he had pure white hair and a hatred for any and all violence. So on top of that, his lover, Nana, was also killed recently. So he's super bummed about basically everything. And then we come to Volstag. Volstag the Enormous, the Lion of Asgard. One of the Warriors Three, along with Fandral the, the Dashing and Hogan the Grim, frequent companions of Thor, and you will have seen them a, a bit in the movies. Mm -hmm. He loves food a lot. He talks about his family life, and he is the best bud you could ask for. Pretty much. He also has an amazing sense of style. I mean, everybody's a little flamboyant in Asgard, but he has this uh, this pink and yellow outfit with these giant yellow plumes coming out of the skullcap hat he wears, which, paired with his great big red beard, makes for a striking and somewhat dashing figure. Um, he also was the very direct inspiration for a D&D character I played for, like, ten years. I love Volstagg so much. So Sif is here to seek comfort after Thor has left her, or I guess she's left, they've mutually left each other, but Balder is super gothy. I have forsworn all battles save this one, that I will forget everything I have ever cherished, defeating at last the fearful curse of the memory of the god I once was. Eternity is a long time, lady. Balder the Brave is a myth I have outlived. And that, that Balder the Brave is a myth I have outlived. Like, it has so much power and so much history. It immediately makes you wonder, who is this guy, if you're not already familiar, and what has he been through? Yeah, the poetry and gravitas to Simonson's dialogue. I mean, you could certainly call this purple prose, and you would not be wrong, but that's not a bad thing. I mean... The Mighty Thor is a comic where the heavier the emotions, the more intense the action, and the quieter the quiet moments, the better. This is not a book that does half measures. This is a book that explores all of the extremes of experience and emotion and existence, and that, above everything else, is why I love it. Well, this is a book about gods and about ancient realms and, and huge adventures, and I really think that the dialogue and the characterization should expand to meet that. Exactly. Now, since Sif also has great big feelings, she leaves the despondent Balder and goes to find her brother, Heimdall. Heimdall is a guy with a great hat who is the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge, the bridge between Asgard and Midgard, which is to say, Earth. He sees all, so she asks him where she can lose herself in battle. And we'll come back to that. But in the meantime, Thor just flew off to space, right, to check on the probe and the weird spaceship. So let's see what he's up to. Thor ends up in far space thanks to Mjolnir's awesome travel powers and sees a truly amazing-looking warship. It's so detailed, which sees him too. Yeah, this is a sentient spaceship. We don't yet know much about it, but we do know that it thinks Thor is a demon, one of the, quote, demon breed, and it opens fire at him and starts firing lasers at the space viking. So Thor, of course, smashes its gun battery with a thracked and heads inside. 
And inside the ship, there's an enormous crystal with a humanoid figure inside. Thor's investigating. He's just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And the crystal is shattered as an alien orange hand reaches up and grabs Thor by the face. It is a horse face alien in an awesome red and orange techno armor. And this figure is genuinely intimidating. I mean, okay, horses are kind of scary. Horse skulls without much flesh on them, which is what this guy's face looks like, that's doubly scary. And when you put a person like that uh, in a body with tons of giant muscles and jagged science fiction space armor and various wires coming in and out of different parts of his body and have him grab a dude by his face, like, I, I, would, I would not want to stay in that room right there. I would just retreat right back into space and tell Nick Fury, sorry, bud, I got a thing to do. That shot of him grabbing Thor's face, it just reminds me of the Alien movies, you know? And Beta Ray Bill's character design, he looks like a villain. He totally does, and sounds like one, too. Rise up, demon. You pursued me only to find death. And when I am through with you, you will welcome it. I am called Bill, Beta Ray Bill. And they clash with a crang, this nice sideways sound effect. The sound effects, by the way, in this run are freaking amazing. I don't know how much of that is Walter Simonson's art and how much of it is John Workman's lettering, John Workman being a legendary letterer, but it works beautifully. And we'll be coming back to the sound effects in this book. And they banter back and forth confusedly, thanks to Scuttlebutt, the ship's translators. Never have I been so well matched by any mortal. But though I relish the struggle, it must end now. Will you yield, warrior? Only in death. And so the ship is just getting smashed all to pieces during the fight because, you know, these aren't guys that just sort of like flick each other with rubber bands. There are hammer blows and great crashing fists and people being thrown through equipment. And the ship realizes it needs to repair itself, so it heads to the nearest planet, which coincidentally is Earth. Which, of course, is bad news for Thor because he doesn't have Mjolnir in his hand at that time, and he uh, transforms back into Donald Blake, and Bill knocks him out. Right. I mean, when you're fighting a giant horse monster, you don't want to turn into a doctor with a limp. You want to be the great big Nordic guy with an incredible mullet and with wings on his head. The great thing about this fight is that it clearly shows that Beta Ray Bill and Thor are evenly matched. This is an amazing fight where each is giving as good as he's getting. But unfortunately, once that transformation occurs, yeah, not so much. And so the ship crash lands right where S.H.I.E.L.D.'s various assault vehicles are waiting, led by Nick Fury. Bill is wondering where Mjolnir is. He wants to use it as a weapon against S.H.I.E.L.D., and he picks up a nearby stick and, kind of frustrated, he whacks it against the wall, and suddenly, he's Thor Bill. Right, Beta Ray Bill, this science fiction horse skull-faced monster, is now wearing a version of Thor's outfit, of the black tunic with blue dots on it, of the big red cape, of the wings on his metal helmet— Except it's not quite the same. It's a little more science fiction. It's like a hybrid between Thor's outfit and some of the details from the way Beta Ray Bill was dressed before. And it is such a cool design. All the deliberate, jagged, metallic angles, and the fact that there's this kind of EKG line almost connecting the dots on Bill's tunic. Like, it's Thor, but it's not Thor. Yeah, it's. I like the idea that Mjolnir, part of its enchantment, is like a personal stylist. Like, it'll, you know, craft an outfit that really matches your personality and a, a hat that will really flatter your horse-like face. Right. I mean, I think Beta Ray Bill is sort of a spring complexion. Actually, I have no idea what complexion he has. He's in autumn. He's okay. In autumn. Okay. <laughs> Legit. But this is noteworthy for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, because we weren't expecting, you know, this villain to be all awesome. But second, because we weren't expecting 
anyone, especially a villain, to be able to lift Mjolnir. The enchantment that Odin put on the hammer was that only someone who's worthy can lift it. The whole thing with Thor having to learn humility by being Don Blake, he had to learn to be worthy again. And so the idea of this monster being the first, okay, well, technically second, there was Red Norvell, long story, but the second person other than Thor to be able to lift the hammer is just unheard of. This right here, this is why the cover was such a shock to longtime Thor readers, and this is Simonson, again, just telling us things aren't what you thought they were. Yeah, this is absolutely turning everything upside down for longtime readers, but also it shows insight into Beta Ray Bill, like... Maybe he's not a villain. If he's worthy enough to possess the power of Thor, maybe there's more to him. Exactly. But that being said, he's being confronted by a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. people, so he's happy to use this newfound power, this newfound Thunder God power, to start kicking ass and not bothering to take names. But suddenly, a gigantic Odin fills the sky with that impressive Simonson art. Right, this is Odin, the father of the gods, the father of Thor, and the entire panel is dedicated to him, like, probably 200 feet high with just a tiny Beta Ray Bill in the foreground. He was so impressive just the panel before, but compared to this guy, nobody is anything. Thor, my son, we have urgent need of thee in Asgard. I must call thee home. And with a boom, Bill is gone, leaving Blake in the wreckage. And he's here alone in the rain, in the ruin, having something happen that he never thought even could happen. Father, hear me! Do not forsake me here! Father! But the lashing storm does not listen, and only the wind and rain reply. And our final page is Don Blake with his arms raised to the heavens, amid all the wreckage, clouds of red and purple smoke all behind him, just yelling, Father! It is... Such an incredibly intense way to end an issue. Like, you want to dial everything up to 11 in The Mighty Thor, especially emotions, and I think this may be up to 12 right here. This is such an incredible debut issue for Walter Simonson, where he just completely smashes the status quo, and you don't know what's going to happen next. But we are just getting started. That was just the first issue in all of the ones we're going to be covering in this podcast. Let's dive straight into the second. On this issue, we have the new Thor logo, which is going to be the official logo until issue 433 in 1991. And it's a pretty rad logo. I mean, the old one just looked so Silver Age, it was just the word Thor, but the edges were all jagged. And this is like this ornate as Guardian exaggerated text. And we start in space. This place is beyond the fields we know. This forge is the forge of destruction. This smith is a breaker of stars. And this sounding anvil rings more loudly with every blow. Doom. And this is something we're going to keep coming back to. This is something we're going to come back to for basically the first year of the comic. We don't know who this hulking space figure is forging his whatever, but we're going to get closer and closer to finding out until it becomes a very, very big deal after a full year of buildup. That is quite the tease. But back on Earth, which is to say Midgard, which is to say Earth, Donald is stranded on top of Beta Ray Bill's wreckage, calling for his father Odin just where we left him. So we see Donald Blake and Thor at their lowest point. He is in despair. He is literally crying. And I can't blame the dude. I mean, he just lost everything that he had fought so hard to gain the worthiness to achieve over the entire course of the Thor comic. And just the way that Simonson draws the rain falling down him, just pooling and dripping down his face, mixing in with his tears. I know the whole tears in the rain thing is a cliche at this point, but damn if it doesn't work. And Don Blake is just crying out in despair. 
It's no use. The hammer's gone, and without it, I'm doomed to remain immortal, unable to contact Asgard or Odin, my father. What will I do? What will I do? Odin, help me. Unfortunately, Fury is the voice of reason. If that was your old man, he ain't going to be real happy to see someone else wearing your threads and hefting your hammer. And Fury's not wrong, because back in the Shining City, back in Asgard, all the Asgardians are really happy to see Thor return until they realize, hey, that's not our buddy. That's a, that's a space horse robot wearing his clothes. What the hell? And Beta Ray Bill has no time for niceties. He immediately starts smashing the place up and even throws Mjolnir at Odin. Odin is is pissed at Bill because, you know, who's this guy wearing his son's clothing, wielding his son's hammer? That's not okay. And the way that Fury is portrayed is another panel where Odin just takes up all of it, but this time it's just his face made of pure, like, plasmic golden energy with Bill in the foreground just dwarfed by the rage. And Odin seals Beta Ray Bill into a stasis field. And it's so cool to see Odin be so godly, but it's also cool to see him being a concerned father. Yeah, that's the thing. He's just worried about his son at this point. But once he kind of realizes what's going on, once he cools down a little and starts thinking about what could have caused this, he's much more courteous to Beta Ray Bill. He's a little apologetic. This is an Odin I really like. Odin could be a total jerk, like in modern Thor he certainly has been, with uh, the female Thor taking over for the Odin son we know. But this Odin is noble. He's wise. His emotions can get the best of him, sure, but that's the case for all of us. Yeah, he's a more three-dimensional character. And so, now that Odin realizes what's going on, back on Earth, there is another mighty Baroom! And Donald just disappears, leaving Fury sort of shrugging, and leaving Donald Blake, now in his Thor form, in the Shining City with Beta Ray Bill and with Odin. Yeah, I love how Fury gets blindsided by yet another huge, you know, Asgardian uh, sound effect. Like, he's just like, damn it! Why does this always keep happening to me? At the same time, though, I mean, that's part of the gig. You're going to have a lot of big sound effects if you're Nicholas Fury. <laughs> Back in Asgard, there's a bit of banter about uh, Thor's momentary loss of faith. And Odin, deciding to sort things out, frees Beta Ray Bill once Bill says he'll, he'll be cool, he'll be chill. And they all head to a place which I am going to try to pronounce called Klidskjalf, which is the high seat. It's a, a big throne that overlooks basically everything to talk about this sticky situation and what they're going to do about it. Of course, as they go off to discuss this, there are other people in Asgard whose motivations are not so noble. And we are, of course, referring to Loki, half-brother of Thor in this version of mythology, and the god of mischief, lies, and or evil, depending on who and when you ask. He's in exile at this point. He's hanging out in this awesome Viking gothic-looking castle at the end of a craggy cliff road with dragon head sculptures all about it. It's, it's a pretty sweet pad. I mean, I would hang out there if it weren't for all of the intense evil around. Yeah, I love how Loki is introduced high up in this big old castle— Talking to a bird. That's right. Uh, now, we should say Loki is not technically the same kind of god that many of our other characters are. He's not from Asgard. He's not from Vanaheim. He actually is technically a frost giant, although he looks much more like that human-type god that the Aesir and Vanir are, that was adopted by Odin way back in the day. If you've seen the Thor movie, that's a major, major plot point. Here, it's less of a big deal, but does certainly factor in. And then outside, we see some hunters engaging in a forbidden troll hunt, which is won by a beautiful woman named Lorelei, who lures the poor creature out of hiding with her beauty and gentleness, and then abruptly kills it. She points out to the various hunters who were just chasing it and flailing swords at it. Weapons and strength are not everything, my lords. Loki sees this happening in basically his yard, and 
he's impressed. He likes this woman's craftiness. He invites her in to talk about how they might help each other out. And despite the hunter's warnings, because everyone knows that you shouldn't trust Loki, she says, sure. Now, do you think Lorelai set this up to meet Loki? Honestly, I don't know, because as we'll learn about her character, she's going to be a big deal. She is very manipulative and very crafty, but she also doesn't always think things through. I just wonder why she shows up at this random troll hunt. Like, is she part of the hunting party, or is she just happened along a troll and was like, hey, I'm going to go kill a troll? I feel like she was probably trying to prove a point to these uh, armor-clad beefcakes who she defeated. Sure, sure. It's her own brand of feminism. I mean, I'm okay about that. Not, not the murder part. Like, yeah. don't don't murder people. Yeah, yeah. Even trolls. That's right. Trolls have feelings, too. Presumably. <laughs> a little bit later, once Loki and Lorelai have had a chance to chat, we follow the Lady Sif, warrior woman of Asgard, former love interest of Thor, the woman we mentioned trying to find comfort in the super-depressed Baldur and failing. She's still looking for a battle to get lost in, wandering through the forest, thinking about her broken heart. And as she walks, she suddenly comes upon Thor kissing Lorelai? Ah, Lady Lorelei, to feel your arms entwined about me, your sweet breath upon my face, your lips pressed to mine, tis all that I desire. For such kisses I would forsake even Midgard itself. So, though my own breath is less sweet, my lord Thor, accept this parting kiss. The kiss of a warrior born and no soft plaything. And she just socks the bejesus out of both of them and sort of stomps off. I love the Lady Sif so much. I mean, she's in the past often been defined by her relationship to male characters. You know, like I said, Thor felt very Silver Age before this, and that was really a Silver Age thing with female characters. And that's still here to a degree. I mean, her broken heart is her motivation right now, and later on, another romantic connection will be. But at the same time, she is such an independent, tough, badass lady who doesn't take any crap from anybody, and I just love her for it. She's a true warrior, and this is a refreshing change from 336, where she's written literally kind of like a romance comic character, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but I prefer that they focus on her warrior qualities. That is the core of her character. Exactly. So now that she's gone, Thor, surprise, surprise, morphs into Loki. It was Loki in disguise all along. And Loki and Lorelai share a little laugh about how fun it was to mess with Sif and make her feel terrible. And hopefully now she'll just be depressed and get out of the way of all their grand machinations and schemes. Back on Hlidskjalf, Bill is relating his story. And I love the way this is phrased as he describes his background. We built our cities in the burning skies and danced in the sunlight. Because once again, we have this monstrous-looking dude just talking in words of pure poetry. I mean, he's clearly such a complex guy, and we, we get that from the dialogue immediately. And so he explains his deal. He explains who he is, why he was in the situation he was in. It turns out he was built from his race's most ferocious carnivore to be the guardian of his people. He's part of an ancient uh, race of aliens who fell upon hard times when the core of their galaxy exploded. And they've been traveling the galaxy in a cold sleep while being chased by demons and losing. But now... I have found a weapon that may protect my people for all time, and I'm loath to give it up. Especially as I have won it in fair combat. But of course, Thor was under a handicap as Donald Blake, so there will be a rematch, a fight to the death on Skartheim. And I love the way Odin describes this duel, which, you know, if you're in Asgard, this is kind of how you decide things. We have two guys who are clearly worthy to lift this hammer, or else they wouldn't have been able to in the first place. So to decide who gets it, it's time for a duel to the death. As Odin explains, The victor's reward shall be Mjolnir. 
the enchanted hammer. The loser's reward shall be a funeral pyre. For stakes so high, the price must be great. This fight is to the death. I have spoken. Get thee to Skartheim. Skartheim, where even gods may perish. Which I love because it sounds like something from the cover of a comic book, like to draw you in, or like an old science fiction magazine. But yeah, I mean, the stakes do have to be high because this is Mjolnir. This is the most powerful weapon in the cosmos. I mean, it's the Marvel Universe, so it's like maybe in the top 10. But still, so the fact that the, the solution here is a duel to the death, it's kind of fitting. Would it be better if they just like Rochambeau'd for it? Well, sure, but... That's not how you do things in Asgard. You have to do things awesome, and sometimes that means a little bit of honorable murder. And this is an awesome fight. With Bill and Thor, they have no weapons, no powers or enchantments. It's just them. But it's clear that neither of them wants to kill each other, as Thor muses. Never before have I fought one so worthy or noble. But if I fail, what of my guardianship of Earth? Who shall be her champion in time of need? Which is like, oh yeah, thinking of others, Thor. Like, nice maturity, dude. Yeah, that's the thing. This is Thor number 338. It's the 338th issue. Well, okay, there was Journey into Mystery, so not exactly. But still, Thor's got this whole worthiness thing on lock at this point. He is a noble guy. He's wise. He's thoughtful. He can get a little hot-headed sometimes, sure, but he's a real good dude. And that's something that this first arc sells the hell out of. Thor and Beta Ray Bill are both really good people. They just want to help the various species and planets and all that stuff that they care about, and there's only one weapon of this level of power to do it. So here they are, in this, like, amazing volcano realm, punching the hell out of each other. And the climax of the battle is this insane fight on an obsidian raft that levels the surrounding countryside, and Bill and Thor both collapse in exhaustion. Just as their obsidian raft is going to go over a waterfall, lava fall actually, it's a lava fall, uh, into a pool of fiery hell. And Bill revives just in time to try to save Thor, whereas easily he could have saved himself and one Mjolnir right there. But instead he picks up Thor and tries to save him when they are suddenly transported back to Asgard. And Bill declares himself the winner being the last man standing. Lord Odin, your son yet lives. The finest foe I have ever fought, but I have bested him. The hammer is mine. At which point... At the very beginning of the next issue, Beta Ray Bill collapses, because that was about all he had in him. I mean, the only reason he woke up before Thor is because his home planet is a very fiery one. I grew up in South Florida, so I can I can sympathize. <laughs> but he's got nothing left. So what you're saying is we shouldn't have a fight on Skartheim, because you would win. Uh, right, I mean, just, just because of the heat thing. I really do like how they took great pains to show that Beta Ray Bill did win, but just barely. He just woke up just long enough to pick up Thor, declare himself the winner, and then fall unconscious again. Exactly. But thankfully, they're alive, or as the narration tells us, in far more words with far more awesome. But though the arms of Hela, the death goddess, beckon to each, neither Thor nor Beta Ray Bill is destined to surrender to her embrace this day. And I love that Simonson could have just said, hey, they're alive. But I think he subscribes to the school of thought from the old role-playing game Exalted, where you don't just say, I hit it with my mace. It's far better to describe the exact ways in which you hit it with your mace, the type of impact it causes, the uh, stunned sighs and screams from the onlookers. Like, you got to give more detail. You don't, don't just be boring. Make it awesome. Yeah, this is Asgard, man. That's right. And so in the Houses of Healing, Odin goes to talk to each combatant in turn. He talks to Thor, who's ashamed, saying he's going to renounce his godhood and leave Asgard. 
Bill, on the other hand, is troubled. Will the hammer stay his or be taken by a superior warrior like he took it from Thor? And it's rightfully Thor's, right? He didn't kill him. And that was kind of the deal he was supposed to. So Bill asks Odin what to do. He asks Odin for help. And Odin says he had but to ask. I like to think that Odin is really taking the measure of each of these warriors right now. You can kind of see that he didn't create this whole situation, but now that it's here, there's a plan forming in Odin's mind. Yeah, Odin is always 10 steps ahead of everybody. And like, not in a crappy manipulative way. Well, okay, yes, in a manipulative way, but this is an Odin whose judgment I kind of respect, and that's not always the case, the way he's portrayed in Marvel Comics. So next we see Nidavellir, the realm of the dwarves, where a white-bearded wanderer in a blue cloak encounters the dwarves, asking for their hospitality. Of course, their leader, Atri, recognizes him immediately because this is Odin in his old man costume, which in the great tradition of comics alter egos is a hat. Yeah, he wears a blue robe and a blue hat and has a great big beard. It kind of reminds me of when Wolverine dresses up as Patch in the early Wolverine ongoing series, and it's basically just him with his ridiculously, like, trademark specific to him hair and some pantyhose over his eyes wearing black. That is exactly where I went to, and Atri calls him on it, saying, Had I but one eye, Lord Odin, I should recognize your mantled power even in the dark. So the thing I like about Atri... Uh, aside from the fact that he's a dwarf, and I love fantasy dwarves so much. They're easily my favorite fantasy race. Elves, pff, whatever. Uh, but the thing I love about him is that he's also going to be a big deal in a famous New Mutants and X-Men story. The New Mutant Cannonball will kind of become Atri's adopted son, and will actually, in a what-if issue, end up marrying Atri's daughter. And as a big New Mutants fan, and a big dwarf fan, and a big Thor fan, this like scratches all of my itches at once. That sounds amazing. Oh, it, it totally is. So they talk until dawn because Odin has a request to make. Atri says the dwarves respect their creators, but they also resent them for driving the dwarves from the sun. So he will do what Odin asks, but only if a female god can defeat the dwarves' champion or be the champ's chattel or wife. Right. So that's, you know, not great, but I do love the way that works because the dwarves had this resentment toward the Aesir. You know, the Aesir created them, the gods created them, but they also exiled them underground. And so I like that Atri is able to say, hey, I'm uh, pretty pissed at you guys. Our entire race is, but, you know, let's talk about it like grownups and let's make a deal that, you know, factors our resentment in, but is still a fair, if sexist, deal. Yeah, it dovetails nicely with our story and our characters because the dwarves happen to have a champion who either needs a beatdown or a wife, and Odin has a female warrior who really needs to get her extra aggression out. And back in the Houses of Healing, Thor and Beta Ray Bill are wearing some bathrobes and sort of checking in about the fight as they heal. I do love this. Like, it almost seems like an Asgardian spa. Totally. They're having spa day together. They're getting pedicures and manicures. I got my first pedicure recently. I ended up with uh, sparkly blue toenails. It was actually kind of great, although my feet are apparently very ticklish. I didn't have any idea. <laughs> now, I wonder if Asgardians would be ticklish or not. Uh, if they were ticklish, it would be like super epically ticklish. <laughs> There'd be like huge uh, uh, sound effects. Exactly. And so Thor is still ashamed that he lost, but Bill points out, hey, that fiery battlefield, that's a lot like my home planet. I kind of had an advantage. And they both wonder... Was that deliberate on Odin's part? I mean, he's always manipulating stuff. Maybe it was. But speaking of Sif, who we were talking about a second ago, 
Bill and Thor look out the window and see her riding like a bat out of hell on a horse. She's in her full Asgardian battle armor. And okay, let's talk a little bit about Sif's battle armor because I love it. It is amazing. It's this very striking white and red configuration. And she's got these red wings framing her head with a red collar and girdle and bracers, boots and battle shorts. I don't know why I love those battle shorts so much. Like they're kind of they're kind of like chunky, loose shorts. I don't even know how you would describe them. They're like a cross between Daisy Dukes and cargo shorts, except made of armor and red it's like you could find them at j crew i think they would be the three inch inseam shorts at j crew okay but for some reason they just make her look completely badass and i cannot explain it walter simonson is really good at making things that shouldn't look badass look badass so see figure one this or figure two archangel's entire design in x factor yeah i i just think the shorts just look a little bit more functional and a little bit more active wear rather than a bathing suit yeah, which, you know, so many other superheroines tend to wear, like the old Ms. Marvel, Psylocke, whatever. So they ask what's up, and I love their reaction when they are told that Sif has gone to be a champion on their behalves. They're like, what? Like, we're supposed to be the big warriors. And the thing is, you could easily read this as them saying, what, a woman fighting on our behalf? But I don't think it's that. I think it's more, what, anyone who's not us fighting on our behalf? Because we're kind of the best. It's not that we're better than women, it's that we're better than everyone. Yeah, just let them finish their manicures, dude. They'll go out and fight. But I love this about Sif. I mean, she's been looking to lose herself in battle ever since she was, you know, so rudely dumped by Thor. And this is a way to do it where she can also serve her liege Odin and serve her realm and serve the noble cause that Odin presumably has dreamed up with the dwarves. And the nurse says, They say her thoughts now are only for battle, and that she may never return. So Sif's gone to do her own thing, and then of course went off to battle. But after that, Volstagg had a bit of criticism for Baldur's method of drowning himself in food. Baldur, my friend! I fear you do not properly appreciate the true philosophy of eating. Because Balder, ever since all the stuff he went through, is kind of sleepwalking through life. He's kind of traumatized. And just as they're wandering around, they're challenged by a guy named Agnar. He's a young Vanir warrior trying to make his bones because apparently his father, Hrothgar, was killed due to Balder. He's trying to get revenge. He wants a duel with Balder. It's very Old West. But uh, Balder refuses and he avoids Agnar's blade just by quickly, you know, stepping around him and says he's done fighting. And so Balder just sort of wanders off. Volstagg, however, is not done with the situation. He picks up Agnar, throws him over his shoulder, and says he's got a few things to tell him about Balder the Brave. And I love the the interaction between Volstagg and Agnar. Like, Volstagg is so jolly, but he's, like, crunching on his foot. And Agnar is like, hey! And then he's like, wait, ow, I think you broke my foot! So- I didn't sign up for this! <laughs> so Agnar is kind of this know-it-all young whelp, and Volstagg is basically kicking his ass just by manhandling him, not even fighting him. Yeah, he just sort of sits on Agnar and tells him the tale of Baldur's tragedy. That Baldur, like we mentioned before, was killed by this mistletoe arrow thanks to to Loki's treachery and was sent to hell, what we didn't hear before and we learn now is that when Balder went down to hell, which is in the realm of Niflheim, he found that the legends were indeed true and discovered something terrible. When he looked upon the dead, he was filled with horror, for there before him were the very warriors who he himself had slain and sent to Niflheim in battles past. These were the fruits of his many victories. And we have this great close-up in the flashback of Baldur's eyes with skulls in the center of each one. Death. 
It's very effective. Like in the monkeys, whenever Davy would fall in love, they would put twinkles in his eyes, except this is, of course, far more horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, but also unlike it. But I enjoy that parallel. Now, now I'm just imagining Balder and the monkeys, you know, getting criticized for lip syncing or whatever. Or was it not playing their instruments? Whichever it was. Yeah, he, he wouldn't be taking his uh, practice seriously or he would be like super awesome and not really appreciating his own talents. Okay, well, either way. And so Volsak explains to Agnar that unlike he or Thor, mighty warriors both, Baldur is a gentle soul, a poet in a warrior's body. Volstag talks about how many people could forgive Agnar if, if Baldur was hurt, such as Foundrel the Dashing, and even himself, but Hogan the Grim? Hogan was never young. He would never forget or forgive. And we have this great close-up of Hogan the Grim's eye, and yes, he looks very grim. He is a grim dude. I love the Thor movies, but I don't think they captured the grimness of Hogan in that because they didn't have the cop stash and they didn't have the furry horned helmet. Oh. I feel like you need those things. Also, <laughs> the daggers strapped to the forearms. Those are all very grim. They are. Uh, and this seems like a total random one-off, just a way to have us learn more about Balder. But actually, Agnar is going to become a medium big deal later on. This is all setting stuff up for later, every single thing that happens. I love how well-crafted this whole sequence is. So, we just saw Sif riding off to fight the dwarves champion to uh, make sure that Odin's deal with Atri goes through, right? So what is Sif up to? She's thinking of her motivation not just to lose herself in battle, but also... There is another warrior in this world who is as brave, as valiant as the mighty Thor. And though he wears a guise as alien as I have ever seen, still, I would find favor in his eyes. Still, I would show him that I, too, am a warrior born. So how do we feel about this part? Because I have kind of mixed feelings. Yeah, like, I was psyched about this development for her until I realized it was a way to impress Beta Ray Bill. So once again, we have the Lady Sif, this incredible warrior, doing things because she's into a guy. And I don't know, on the one hand, you do see way too much of that in female characters, especially in this era and before, and not nearly enough in male characters. At the same time, I mean, love's a pretty good motivation for doing something. It's one of my very favorite motivations. Absolutely. And this is very realistic. I mean, who hasn't tried to nurse themselves through heartbreak by throwing themselves into work or finding a really cool rebound? So it's understandable. I think it's just because Sif is one of the very few female characters in this book that kind of her actions have more weight for me. And that's the thing. I love Simonson's run, but there just aren't that many female characters. And many of the female characters who are there are either defined by love or manipulation or both. We're certainly going to see that with Lorelai later on. And with Sif, I mean, as much as she is a warrior, that love aspect of her backstory is very much there. So I think it's a lot better than the Thor that came before. But, you know, we're we're nowhere near, like, the level of the current female Thor being the center of her own book and passing the Bechtel test with a mighty crack of doom every issue. Yeah, it's a quantum leap forward, but it's still the 80s. However, what Sif does next is awesome, because she is ambushed by a giant, giant dwarf, and they go quickly into battle. Now, this dwarf is named Throg, which is a cool dwarf name, but is also, I should point out, the name of not just the first, but the second frog to wield the power of the lightning and the storm with the mighty Frog Yolnir later on. I didn't even make that connection until you brought that up. That is hilarious. Oh, man. I'll, I'll talk more about Throg later on. It'll be particularly relevant in a future episode, so we'll definitely come back to him but yeah here is Sif fighting the giant dwarf Throg and she easily beats him outsmarting him whacking him unconscious with a flat of her blade because she's a badass 
And Atreus shows up, grateful, the leader of the dwarves. Apparently what was actually going on, Throg wasn't really their champion, he was just terrorizing all the other dwarves. So Atreus figures, okay, if we can have him defeated by a woman, he'll be ashamed because he's presumably a sexist douchebag and will go away. So again, it's like good feminism, bad feminism. Like it's a little disappointing to hear that he requested, you know, a warrior to come beat him because being beaten by a woman is more humiliating than being beat by a man. But on the other hand, we had no doubt that Sif was going to win this. Oh, and her doing so is just so gloriously badass. Yeah. So with this part of the bargain complete, Atri's ready to go. Make haste, lads. Leap to the fires. Stoke the furnaces. We go to work. So before heading to Nidavellir with Odin and Thor, Sif asks Bill if he'll return after saving his people, and she reaches for his hand. But he is a pretty bummed, melancholy horse guy. Look at me, Lady Sif. My brothers are the beasts of the forest. My sisters, the machines that drive the great starships. When I was remade as a warrior to serve my people, I surrendered all of my humanity. I have none left for anyone. And Sif, who is reaching out for Bill's hand, pulls it back. And it's this quiet, subtle moment in the art as we have the close-ups of their hands with Bill's speech bubble coming from off-panel. Simonson is so good at bombastic, but he's also good at this level of subtlety. Yeah, this is a great panel. And again, it's something that builds the relationships between the characters. Even though these are godly, grandiose characters, they build in these moments that make you relate to and empathize with them. So we go from that quiet moment to one that is very much the opposite, because in the furnaces of Nidavellir, we see this almost city that is a single forge, this blue-white-hot city block full of machinery, full of buckets of molten ore, full of this surprisingly technologically advanced equipment, and the characters themselves are just dwarfed by this massive, massive set of machinery. It is science fiction heaven. Throughout this run, what really strikes me is how well the art is complemented by what is a really limited color palette compared to modern comics. And this is one of those pages that is a perfect example of it. Everything in here is blue and white, and it just works so well to convey like the white hot heat of this chamber. Yeah, and just the sheer sense of scale. I mean, not every artist is good at making it clear how big stuff is, but Simonson nails it here. It actually reminds me of the uh, main part of the Hobbit movies that I actually liked, which was the scene set in the dwarven city of Erebor, where it was clear that this entire civilization, this entire nation, was built around the concept of forging stuff. And so these grand works were created for that express purpose, and that's what we see here, but with this wonderful science fiction bent. And it is so hot in here that we see that even the Asgardians in Beta Ray Bill are wearing safety goggles, which is hilarious and awesome. It is, and I really love the juxtaposition of the fantasy and sci-fi elements here, and that's exactly what we see, because the fact is, the Nine Realms are everything. It's not just all, you know, swords and princesses. It's every type of fantastical thing, both scientific and magical, that you can think of kind of crammed together, and they overlap. You can go from one realm to the next to the next, and you can get these weird juxtapositions. I love it. So the liquid Uru metal is poured into a gigantic hammer-axe-shaped mold and... Atri yells out at the Lord of Asgard. Now, Lord Odin, before the mold is cooled, release the enchantment now! Stand back! This is the moment when we succeed or fail. I must strike with the full force of the Odin power to achieve our purpose. Only thus can the magics we desire be locked within the Uru metal forever. So be it! 
And Beta Ray Bill is given a gauntlet to Don to reach into this gigantic molten star metal mold to pull out the white-hot hammer. And as he does so... I... I feel nothing. Hold. I have it. The weight is enormous. But it grows lighter even as I pull it from the fire. The power. It flows into me. I... I'm changing. And with a great... BADABOOM! The enchantment is mine once more. And we have this amazing full-page spread of Beta Ray Thor of Bill and his Thor outfit holding up this molten white-hot axe hammer. This is Stormbreaker. This is Bill's new hammer. Now there are two, and it is awesome. I have to say, for a Thor comic, there are so many hero moments given to Beta Ray Bill, and it's amazing. Like, again, it's showing that Thor's maturity is growing, because in his own book, there's room for other characters to really blossom. Yeah, Beta Ray Bill is one of my favorite fictional characters in any medium of all time. Like, I have oft considered a Stormbreaker tattoo somewhere on my body, (laughs) just because, yeah, he's doing the right thing is just what he does. And his intentions, his motivations are always pure, even if he gets some of the details wrong sometimes. And, like, it works out for him. He ends up this big damn hero. Odin names the hammer Stormbreaker for Bill to carry all of his life. And he returns Mjolnir to Thor, which is now and forever his alone. Well, until that one time later on when Nick Fury whispered a secret in Thor's ear, but that wouldn't be for decades later. (laughs) He tells Bill that his visions have shown the demons almost at Bill's fleet. They've got to hurry now that he has the power to fight them. And of course, Thor is all about it. Yet together we may prevail, my lord and father. Nothing shall stand against us. Nothing! And they clash their hammers together in the most blunt instrument display of sudden brotherhood ever. I mean, they were foes. They were mortal enemies struggling over this magical weapon like an issue ago. And now... They are partners in hammer-wielding justice enforcement galactic-wide. Like, that's one of my favorite things about the characters, is that there's no bitterness, there's no resentment. I mean, they understand. There was a misunderstanding. They punch each other a whole lot. But now, now they have an entire race of people to save from these demons pouring out of the heart of a star. I love this comic so much. (laughs) So much. And of course, this is exactly what Odin wanted to hear from them, that they were going to team up. And so Thor summons his chariot, pulled by goats. Did we mention that Thor has a chariot pulled by goats? And not just any goats. These are Tooth Gnasher and Tooth Grinder. These are war goats. In Norse mythology, Thor butchers and eats them every night, and then they're reborn every morning, and they're totally cool with it because they're just that badass. What? (laughs) Norse mythology is great. And they have a limited diet, I guess. I mean, that sounds pretty rad, but I can't imagine eating goat every day. I feel like Thor has some Asgardian spices. He mixes it up a little. There's like a spice rack inside the chariot. I bet Volstagg has like some sort of Asgardian cooking, you know, show or class that he gives to everybody. Oh, I like that. It's the the great Asgardian (laughs) cook-off. He who is worthy shall get this golden pan. Right. And so they're off to go be big damn heroes and fight a bunch of demons to save some sleeping aliens. And Thor says, Farewell, father. Look for us from your high seat and guide our steps. And Bill says, Farewell, Lord Odin. Look for us again when we have had the victory. Odin turns to Sif. And thee, lady? Farewell, my liege. Look not for me again until the sun stands upon yon hill. Sif. Do not try to prevent me, Thor. I have earned the right to come. And Thor, after a pause, grins. So be it, as they say. 
And I love this moment here. I love in the panels, Thor takes a moment. Sith asks to come with him. Thor has to take a moment. And then he welcomes her with an open hand and an open smile. Oh, yeah. So now we have the three most valiant warriors in Asgard. Well, okay, like the two most valiant and then also this awesome horse guy on a chariot pulled by goats crashing across the Rainbow Bridge Bifrost into space. And Thor cries, Look to thy weapons, you demons! Up, Tooth Gnasher! Up, Tooth Grinder! Pull for the stars! The foe awaits, and joyous battle is before us! And I love how this sounds like Asgardian Santa. Like, Thor's gonna bring toys and hammers to all the children. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that I kind of wanted the Stormbreaker tattoo. (laughs) What I really want, and I don't even know how this would work, because I already have a piece on my back, and that would be the only part of my body big enough, but I just want, basically, this panel... On my body, I want Bill and Thor and Sif charging through space on the Rainbow Bridge being awesome because it's like the sheerest, purest form of camaraderie-based badassitude I have ever seen in my life. This panel is comics perfection. I've got good news for you because any good tattoo artist will be able to do that for you. <laughs> I feel great about that. I, I only have two tattoos, so I, uh, I, I guess I'm inexperienced. But thanks, Kyle. By the way, that was Kyle Yount, our producer, also the voice of Odin in this show. And he's doing an awesome Odin, by the way. Totally off the cuff. So Bill, Thor, and Sif travel to Bill's fleet of starships, which are currently under attack by demons. And one ship has already been destroyed, Bill says. My people... Locked in cold sleep as they were, they had no chance against those creatures. We are too late. To save this one ship, but we will avenge them as only the mightiest warriors of Asgard can. So Thor and Beta Ray Bill are going to find the source of the demons, and Sif is staying behind. And I love the way this works. This is one of my favorite parts in Simonson's entire run. Because we see Sif single-handedly, with just a single sword in space, opposing this literal tidal wave of demons. I mean, the way Simonson draws these demons, and for that matter, the fleet of Theta Ray Bell ships itself, it's almost like a stream of liquid with just claws and teeth, or in the case of the ships, you know, wings and engines. It's one huge organism. We see the same thing when Walter Simonson draws the demons in the Inferno chapter of X-Factor, and I love the way he does this. And there's a panel of the Lady Sif seen from behind, And this enormous horizontal wave of demons just coming up above her as she declares in one of my favorite badass lines in Simonson's run. Come, demons. Who will be the first to taste this sweet steel? And Thor and Beta Ray Bill are following that stream of demons back to Bill's home galaxy. And they're taken aback by what they find. There's an endless demons pouring forth from the star. And we see in the same panel their chariot coming up in its own stream of energy like... I want this as a blacklight poster. I want this on velvet. This is super cool art. Again, just truly creepy and evocative. But they are spotted and the fight begins. But their combined might isn't working. The demons just keep coming. But Thor, he has an idea. If he and Beta Ray Bill throw their mystic Uru metal hammers into the portal so that they collide in the center, this is going to work out just fine. Say no more, Thunderer. Let Stormbreaker Mjolnir speak as one. Braham! It works. The portal is destroyed. And Sif, as she's battling demons with a situation looking dire, she's ready to die. Very well. If today I must journey to the halls of Hela, I shall not travel alone. But as she's preparing for the final attack, Beta Ray Bill's ship Scuttlebutt arrives to save the day. 
And this is one of my favorite panels. You just see Sif's face backlit with badoom, badoom above her. And she looks just like Sigourney Weaver. Interestingly enough, Walter Simonson actually drew the comics adaptation of Alien. So that kind of makes sense. I could see his art being so perfect because so much of this kind of evokes that space alien creepiness. Mm -hmm. And so Sif and Scuttlebutt team up. They've never met before, but Scuttlebutt says, hey, you're fighting my buddy Beta Ray Bill's enemies. You must be my buddy, too. Let's do this. So Scuttlebutt prepares to self-destruct to take out, you know, herself and the demons with Sif willingly standing by. To protect the fleet. And so we see the countdown, you know, four, three, two. And just as the word one is almost finished being said, that's when the demons suddenly turn to almost a mist and just flow through Sif and flow through Scuttlebutt. Because that is when the hammers have collided inside the heart of the star that was the portal. Like, what a goddamn moment of pure freaking heroism. Now that they can rest a minute, Scuttlebutt and Sif can have their own, like, spa day heart-to-heart as they talk about Beta Ray Bill. Yeah, if you're going to not pass the Bechtel test, you might as well not pass the Bechtel test in space fighting demons with a spaceship. Sure. And when we see our heroes next, the warriors return to a hero's welcome in Asgard. I kind of love the caption that introduces this as Beta Ray Bill and Thor are getting ready for the big feast. Still... Even heroes need bats. I kind of want to see that be a a kid's book. Like, you know, everybody poops, but Asgard style. (laughs) And I like it because it adds an element of realism. Like, you hardly ever get to see, you know, superheroes doing normal bodily things. Right. I mean, they're they're covered in, like, purple demon icor at this point. And I'm sure they got very sweaty fighting all those demons in space. Plus, the goats are kind of smelly. That's true. Goats (laughs) are excellent creatures, but they have creepy square eyes and they don't smell so great. But Thor wonders why Bill is so quiet. He assures them that he holds no grudge against Bill, and they did save his people after all. But Bill's really going to miss Asgard because now he has to go back to protecting his people, protecting the cold sleep fleet that houses his entire race. The uncompromising acceptance I have had when even my own people can scarcely look at me. The joy of comradeship. Even the touch of a woman's hand. But I say too much. I am what I am and cannot change it. So Odin's concerned about Bill, too, and he goes to Sif to ask for a woman's intuition on the matter. I mean, okay, she's better about people than Odin is, certainly, but she points out, I mean, there's no woman's intuition about it, but I did talk to Bill Ship, and I learned a lot about just what he went through. And so Scuttlebutt told Sif that the story was a lot more elaborate and in-depth than what Bill said. He was chosen from thousands of champions who all died trying to, you know, pass the physical and psychological tests. And then he went through this grueling, you know, physical transformation that would have left almost anybody else dead or insane. Yeah, I mean, Battery Bill has given up absolutely everything to be the champion of his people he's their savior yes but he's going to be forever outside of them and here he's found the one place that just treats him like a warrior like a hero but more importantly like a person and he's got to leave it this again shows how noble beta ray bill is he's gone through this incredibly cruel and grueling process his own people you know can't stay on the side of him, and yet he would do it again in an instant. I love Beta Ray Bill so much. So we have this feast, and all of the assembled Aesir and such are uh, lauding and praising the returned conquering heroes, and Odin has a gift for both Thor and Beta Ray Bill. So there's a super rad glowy Odin panel as Thor and Bill cross hammers. Crackalacta! It's a super metal moment. And after this energy fades... 
Bill feels no different, but Odin tells him to strike his hammer Stormbreaker on the ground, and with a baroom... Bill is transformed into his former self, his pre-Beta Ray Bill self. And I have to point out, this is the first time we've seen what a member of Beta Ray Bill's race looks like. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen a Corbinite. And as it turns out, they look pretty much like humans, but without visible noses or ears and with orange skin. And just seeing this mighty, fearsome horse warrior turn into just a bald guy in a tunic that just looks so, I don't know, innocent. It's... It's kind of emotionally affecting, especially after all the speeches Bill has given about how separate he is and how he can never really connect with anyone. And now Stormbreaker is a cane. Odin has actually transferred the Donald Blake enchantment from Thor to Bill. And I love this part because Thor still remembers getting the hell beaten out of him when he was Don Blake and Bill was still Bill, and just turns to him and grins, saying, What say you, Bill, to a joust now, eh? But more importantly... Thor's gift is that he's no longer under the the Donald Blake enchantment. He can just be Thor full-time now. Right. If he's ever away from his hammer, it's fine. And on the one hand, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff about being Don Blake. Thor felt he could really connect with Earth that way. But let's face it, Thor's been connecting with Earth in all of his guises for quite a long time. Yeah, Donald Blake was like his magical feather, and he can fly without it now. The humanity was in him all along. (laughs) And so we turn to Odin. Praise these heroes, Bill, who has become the second son I never had, and Thor, who is now and forever indivisibly the first son of Odin, the god of thunder, and heir to the throne of Asgard. And Bill still does have to leave, he still does have to protect his people, and the Lady Sif decides to go with him. I must go, Thor. As a warrior maiden, I have become blunt and dulled. I have even believed things that I am sure were but betrayals of my eyes. On Bill's quest, I may regain my temper as I never could on Midgard. And as the heroes leave, Thor turns to his father Odin and asks if the reason that his fight with Bill was in Skartheim was so that Bill would in fact beat him, so that all of these events would occur. And Odin tells him that humility is a lesson even gods can learn, that Thor will remember this defeat forever, which is good for everyone. And more importantly, Thor now has the most amazing ally a Goldilocks Thunder God could ever ask for. We have not seen the last of Beta Ray Bill, we have not seen the last of Sif, and we have not seen the last of all of the glories that Walter Simonson's run have given us so far. But the story isn't over quite yet, because deep under the ground, something stirs. So we cut to a crotchety old gentleman named René Baroque as he's sitting alone in his lighthouse in Quebec, you know, grumbling about this traveling saleswoman who duped him into buying a Cuisinart, which again is a great 80s reference. And if you've ever read X-Men, you know that if a random background character shows up and we get their name and a little bit of their backstory, they're probably doomed. In fact... That's the end of him, because a giant green dragon smashes up through the ground. And later we see him in Cape Cod, where he destroys a tanker ship. Odin, hear me! I have returned, and no one shall stay my vengeance. The life of your son is forfeit. Thor is mine. Do, do, do. That is going to be a big deal later. And there we have the first storyline of Simonson's Thor. There we have the Ballad of Beta Ray Bill. We have Sif's journey from love-struck lady to badass warrior protecting a bunch of aliens. We have another hammer forged from the heart of a star, and we have so many amazing things. If you haven't read this run, 
I mean, you could certainly just listen to our show. We wouldn't complain about that. But if you can, read along with us. Subscribe to Marvel Unlimited or just buy the trade paperbacks or go to a library or whatever. This is basically as good as comics gets, in my opinion. And you owe it to yourself to experience what this run of Thor can be. And speaking of awesome things, we would like to highlight a few of the awesome things within the issues we've covered today. These are our Recognitions of Merit. We've got Hell's Haberdashery, which is best hat. Just like Jack Kirby before him, Walter Simonson draws some truly impressive headgear. And I think for these four issues, my personal choice has to be the helmet that Odin wears, especially when he first shows up in the sky calling down to Beta Ray Bill to bring him to Asgard. You know, you've seen Viking helmets with, like, horns, right? Have you seen Viking helmets with six horns? <laughs> because Odin's helmet has, like, this little Magneto-esque V thing in the front coming from the nose piece, and that's pretty cool. But then he's also got these great big standard Viking-style horns sticking out of the side of it, and he's got these enormous curling antlers. When you are the father of the gods, when you are the all-father, just have all the horns you can. It's like how angels get more powerful as they have more wings. Beardy guys get more powerful as they have more horns. So you're saying Odin is horny. I mean, not as much as, say, Zeus, but, uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> now, we also have a award we like to call the crack doom Award. And apologies to one of my very favorite podcasts, Tighten Up the Defense, for this one, because they do a very similar thing in each episode. But how could you not find the best sound effects in Walter Simonson's Thor? So who wins the crack doom Award this time, Elizabeth? In issue 337, there is a wonderful walk room when Thor transforms inside of... Fury's flying car, and I chose it because the the sound effect itself is turned on its side and kind of truncated to fit into this small panel, and I think it really conveys how well all that galactic energy inside that tiny car must have been like. Oh man, Nick Fury's ears are going to be ringing for days after that. <laughs> He's going to have an ear patch. <laughs> Our next category is the most metal moment, which pretty much speaks for itself. Yeah, I mean, Norse mythology is clearly the most metal mythology. I mean, like, half of metal is based on it, and Walter Simonson's Thor is no exception. And there are so many good options in this run. Like, I had about six of them written down. But I think I have to go for the moment we talked about in Thor number 340, where the Lady Sif stands against a literal tidal wave of demons, challenging them, just preparing to die in battle to protect the Corbinite fleet. And then just a few pages later, she's ready to die in the self-destruction of Scuttlebutt. This is a lady who has her priorities straight. Her priorities are be as awesome as possible and save as many people as possible. I mean, you have like thrumming da 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 guitars under this. You have like a driving drum beat. Then you have the meatly meatly guitar solo come in and she raises her blade. Or so I choose to assume. So I gotta give it to the Lady Sif for these four issues. Now, we're also going to have a fourth category. That one is still in the works, but we assure you, whatever it is, it's gonna be great. And if you have any ideas, we encourage you to email us at thelightninginthestorm at gmail.com. Yes, indeed. And in fact, check out all of our stuff online. If you listen to the outro of our episode, we'll tell you all about it. But next time, a dragon rises from the depths and a voice calls from the past. Fafnir's Vengeance, the saga of the last Viking, the sorrow of Baldur the Brave. This has been, and shall ever be, The, the Lightning, Lightning and, and the, the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. 
in Portland, Oregon of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightninginthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! Asgard!